Welcome to another episode of the Clay County Beacon Podcast. And today I have with me Gavin Rollins, a, a hometown guy, uh, current county commissioner who is running for Congress in a district that covers Clay County. Uh, first of all, you know, Mr. Rollins, thank you uh, for joining us. I appreciate you spending some time with me. Uh, first thing I want to know is uh, tell it's us. An a honor. Little, oh, well, thank you. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Who, who's Gavin Rollins? Yeah, um, so th thank you for what you do. It's uh, helpful to have um, media that's unbiased, that's able to get the message out there to voters. And so thanks for what you do. I'm, uh, I always say I've had the honor of fighting for and, and uh, serving our community in three arenas. As a county commissioner, as you mentioned, um, and then my second term on the Clay County Commission, we can get into a little more detail on that later. But as a teacher, um, I, I think you uh, have some teachers in your family yep. and I've, uh, I'm a history teacher and um, have a master's degree in education. And then as a military officer, I'm currently a captain in the Florida guard. I'm in the uh, intelligence aspect of, of what the army guard does and uh, deployed in 2016, 17 under um, to a combat zone in East Africa, where we did uh, counter support for counterterrorism operations. And then actually had some, interactions with uh, some Chinese aggression that was occurring there. Uh, they were building their first foreign base. So it's pretty relevant to some of the challenges we're dealing with as a nation from a security standpoint. So teacher, veteran, um, county commissioner, and now um, asking for the opportunity to continue to serve the community in Congress. Um, and sure hope I have the opportunity to represent the community, but either way, my passion is uh, service in and defending our country in whatever arena that may be. And I think we need people on the front lines uh, fighting for our country, whether it's overseas, whether it's in the classroom for the next generation or at the local level. And it takes all of us to make this experiment work on uh, this Republic. So, yeah, it's pretty awesome, man. You know, and, and you know, I know for, for me, like it's, it's neat to see somebody whose name I've heard and I'm familiar with running for like a higher level of, uh, office because a lot of times like for me at least I don't know about other people it seems like the people that run are running for Congress and Senate at the federal level it's like who are these folks like I've never met you I've never heard of you never seen you out and about and and that's not something that people could say about you like you know I think people see you out in the community that you're at the county commissioner meetings obviously but you're you're part of the community and I think that's pretty pretty good and so I guess my my next sort of natural question for you is why do you want to be elected to Congress great question well um, a lot of um, when kind of the my heart started stirring with this kind of burden of possibly running, I knew Congressman Yoho had talked about serving um, eight years and then coming home. And so I knew there was a possibility he might retire. When I came back from deployment, um, I realized we're fighting overseas for certain things, but a lot of those issues we're fighting for um, are being waged out in D.C. when it comes to freedom. Um, and the role of government and those types of things. And then also our national security. And um, I think we have some, some national security challenges that need to be addressed. So quite simply, if I have the honor of serving in Congress, I'm gonna go up there to keep America safe. And that means making sure that we have, um, you know, fighting alongside the president to keep us safe and a national security perspective. And we can go into more detail about that. And then reducing government in every way we can, either simplify, reduce, um, or pull pull back, and then give give more um, back to the states as much as we can. So I think government's way too complicated. So any kind of simplification that we can do, and then 
Um, I think it's also important to be a voice for agriculture. My degree is in agriculture, my undergraduate degree, and um, this district has a lot of agriculture throughout our community. And as we've seen, agriculture is, is really a critical um, foundation of our economy and national security. And we have to be able to um, have a strong and robust agricultural um, industry throughout our district, but also throughout our country. So those are kind of my three main priorities. And I have a lot of, of specific policies underneath that. But um, if I have the honor of serving, those those would be the goal. Okay, good. That's, that's you know, it's good. Um, it's good to hear you sort of lay out your thoughts on what your priorities are. Uh, I, I want to jump to to the, the agriculture part of it. Um, there's been a lot of hubbub since, you know, the, the coronavirus and, and the pandemic <clears throat> about supply chains and, and, and federal and state regulations interfering with farmers and people who produce the food and actually grow and make the food to be able to get that to market. Do you feel yeah. that there's, there's an issue with overregulation or, or, or how would you, do you have any Absolutely. thoughts on, on how, the, how we solve those supply chain problems? So when we're in any sort of crisis, well, I, or not? I think we, we obviously want to make sure we have a safe and, um, and abundant food supply and no one wants, you know, Upton Sinclair's the jungle where meatpacking um, industry, you have, have some safety issues and concerns. Right. But on the federal government, as it always does, overregulates and, and overcorrects in some respects. And so I think um, I'm, I'm in support of um, allowing local um, production of especially beef and um, people to buy at the local level. Right now, the federal government so closely regulates and tightly regulates that industry that we, I think, have what we do is we create um, single points of failure. And that's what we're facing right now with a lot of these meatpacking plants is there's such big industry points that the local supplier can't just sell directly into the local markets. And so like in our area, we, we see cattle, you know, roaming throughout, but that actually has to go through um, a, a bigger supplier and through meatpacking plants and then back to our same grocery stores. There's a lot of regulation against directly selling it to the consumer. And so in general, um, I'm in favor of simplifying and reducing regulation across the board because one of my favorite quotes I've heard out on the campaign trail that I think summarizes it, that complexity does not equal accountability. So just because something's really complicated doesn't mean government's holding anything more accountable. And so you can have simple, concise uh, ways of holding holding people accountable because we do need some government to to make sure that there's a fair and level playing field, but at the same time, uh, it's too complicated and overly burdensome right now. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm a big proponent of, you know, what regulations are in place should have a purpose and, and it should be as simple as possible because I think, you know, if you look at most food regulations, I think the high end goal is make sure things are safe. Like you kind of pointed out before, we don't want to go back to the, you know, the 1700s where there were, you know, just crazy, awful things right. happening. Right. But we also don't want to, when you have, when you have regulations that are too complex what then happens is you have ancillary uh, effects that nobody anticipated and, and what they become instead of a safety measure is something that actually is a hindrance to, you know, getting things to market and, and for capitalism to do its job. Right. Um, you know, the, the, yeah, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. One, I just have one other point on another thing that it makes it more difficult for um, American farmers and producers to compete with like China, for instance, where right. like Chinese tilapia has very, has no regulations. And so, if there's mercury in the water and they all have all kinds of disgusting ways of, of farming the tilapia and then that ends up 
in our grocery stores. And we have so few inspectors at our ports coming in that this they're flooding the market with cheap and low quality fish. And that makes it very difficult for um, American producers. And yet the regulations are very low. And so um, we're really not just competing on a national market. We're competing on an international market and massive overburdensome complicated regulations. What they do is they just make it easier for countries that have zero regulations to right. dump cheap products into the in some cases, unsafe products into our markets. And so that's something we have to do is, um, you know, fight for the American worker, the American uh, producer, because they're producing safer and higher quality products. And um, so that that's another consequence of having over-regulation. Yeah, over-regulation also, you know, and I don't want to linger on this too long, but over-regulation also leads to increased prices for goods produced in the United States because the companies that produce the goods then have to pay people to make sure they're in compliance with the regulations. So, you know, and then that money Absolutely. That cost is passed on. So, so good. Those are good thoughts there. Um, I want to jump to something uh, a little bit different um, that's near and dear to my heart. Um, you know, people have told me that my thoughts are a little bit wild on this particular topic, but I want to talk about the second <laughs> amendment, right? I'm of the advocate that, that every gun law is an infringement, Right. Uh, and that people should be able to to buy pretty much whatever sort of weaponry they want, and 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 that's sort of a an ideal to strive towards. Just because I think people need to think more about what the Second Amendment really is for and why it's important. Yeah. But I'm curious to know um, your general thoughts. Like, where do you stand on on the Second Amendment? Great question. Uh, I think that first, the problem with most people in government is they view the Second Amendment as a privilege that they get to decide. Um, on as opposed to a right that is enshrined in the Constitution. And it's very clear in the wording of it. I, I love um, the Constitution. I've memorized both the First and Second Amendment, and I teach my students about it. And the right of the people to peaceably assemble and petition the government for redress of grievances is obviously in the First Amendment. It's also in the Second Amendment, the right of the people to keep and bear arms. In both cases, they're individual personal rights. And D.C. versus Heller, obviously, Supreme Court case, um, confirm that, that it's an individual personal right to protection, to, to own a um, firearm. And um, so the Second Amendment is non-negotiable. So what does that specifically mean? I think red flag laws are an, are an infringement because they don't, they're not due process. There's already a process that you can go through the courts and, um, and innocent until proven guilty. What red flag laws do is they, they say guilty and now you have to prove your own innocence. And in many cases, because it's a civil infraction, um, people who are getting their guns taken away, they don't have, they're not given, providing an attorney. And so they have to pay for their own attorney to fight for the right to get their own guns back, right. which is a huge problem and infringement. Um, and so I'm not in favor of the way red flag laws are currently structured. I think they're, um, they lack due process. I think generally gun regulation is misguided because everyone wants to stop violence and everyone wants to keep our communities safe. But I've never seen an example of a gun regulation that does that. What, what these gun regulations do is they're feel good policies that m miss the underlying issues at hand. And so what you, we have to allow our citizens to protect themselves. And so people say, well, what about an assault rifle ban? I say, well, what's an assault rifle? First of all, that's a, it's a, technique an assault it's not a specific category and second um, if you're a pregnant mom who has an ar-15 and defends her family as happened in tampa a couple about a year ago i think then is that an assault rifle well 
it's her mechanism for defending her family against two brutal intruders who were trying to were in the process of beating her husband to death and wanted to her, harm her family. And she defended her family with an AR-15. So I, I think that um, I, I'm in favor of as few government regulations related to that as possible. I support constitutional carry because I think um, you shouldn't have to get permission from the government to be able to carry and defend yourself. Um, but as a Clay County commissioner specifically, I think it's important to understand what someone's record is because a lot of these people running in the race and, and they may very well do what they say they're going to do, but we don't know because they have no record. I have a record. I push for allowing our employees and Clay County to conceal carry on the job. So now Clay County employees can defend themselves if they find themselves in a situation where they're being attacked. And then I also push to make Clay County a second amendment sanctuary and just reaffirm that in Clay County, we're going to stand up for the second amendment rights of our citizens. Good. Yeah. It's good to hear you say that. Uh, you know, I'm always, uh, you know, always in favor of uh, people who are going to advocate for the second amendment because uh, the second amendment, you know, guarantees the first amendment, right? Like that's the, the teeth behind the, the, the guarantee that if, yeah. if, if the government were to try to infringe on, on either of those, that's really sort of the glue that holds it together. Um, so, you know, when I think one other quick point on that, sure. if you don't mind, I think yeah. it's important because what happens is in, in Republican primaries, everyone's going to say they support the second amendment. It, it would be insane for a candidate to say they don't, right. but I've actually been in a room full of angry people who wanted me to vote a different way on second amendment issues. And were saying, I, you know, I wanted their, um, kids to die and very emotional, very raw arguments. And I had to stand up under that pressure and still lead the effort to, to vote what I truly believe. And I think that's why it's important to have a battle-tested conservative who's going to stand up for our rights as a, because some of the candidates in the race might very well mean to stand up for the Second Amendment. But a, some tragedy might happen, and then suddenly CNN and a wave of um, liberal you know, protest occurs or something, and then they change their view on it because they're caved to political pressure. I won't do that. I've already stood up when it was difficult and led the effort on this issue. And I think that's important um, to distinguish between other candidates in this race. Yeah, I think that's absolutely important. It, it's very easy to sit and say uh, when the pressure's not on, you know, yes, I'll support this or I'll act a certain way on, on any issue, Second Amendment or otherwise. It's very different when, you know, you have the, the wild-eyed uh, voters at Clay County <laughs> looking at you dead in the face saying yeah. you're wrong and do it oh, different, yeah. right? So, you know, but that, no, that is a po an important distinction um, as far as the, the record that you have on that. So thank you for uh, clarifying that one. Um, so, you know, we talk about uh, all the different things that the, you know, the government is involved in uh, and being a lone member of Congress. And I don't mean that in a derogatory way, but like every individual, yeah. you know, Congress is made up of a bunch of individuals and we know what Congress as a body does. Um, you know, what would you view like your, your role uh, in, in things like, let's say like illegal immigration, like where, what do you, what do you think yeah. you, what sort of policies or, or positions would you advocate for in, in terms of, uh, immigration in general, if you were elected to Congress? Well, I think immigration is a national security issue. We have to have a secure border that's non-negotiable. And so I would, I would be in support of building a wall and securing our border. But I also think there's another piece of the immigration that um, isn't as talked about, but we need to reform and update the process for legal immigration. And so what happens at the border is you have such a backlog oftentimes of um, 
with with immigration judges and various other things. And we need to have an updated and efficient immigration system so that we can quickly process those who are here illegally and then also work to process those who are seeking to come here legally. Um, and so I think that's that's a critical um, piece of the puzzle. And so we secure the border, but then update and reform and simplify the, the legal immigration system. And then when it comes to illegal immigration, we can't, you know, detain people for months. We need to go ahead and adjudicate their case, take care of it, and then send them home. And that's one of the problems with or the challenges with detention centers at the border with separating families. It's the law. Congress should probably change that law. Um, but it also is um, a, a function of how long it takes for a judge to actually rule on a case. Right. So it sounds like you would be in favor of, of reform to the laws to, you know, still keep the border secure, but but also maybe add in a little bit of compassion in the way that we, we handle people. Because I do think it, it is more compassionate to say to someone quickly, listen, you know, we've heard your case and, and by rule of law, you can't stay here. You have to go back you know, to wherever it was that you came from. I think right. it's compassionate to do that quickly rather than to let them linger, you know, in, in, in any and sort of situation. More, it's more inexpensive over the long term. Instead of detaining somebody in this country, if, if they came here illegally and we need to send them back, then we need to do so quickly um, because taxpayers are paying for their detention. And like you're saying, yeah, I, I think we can be tough on um, on immigration and, and believe in the rule of law, but also still be compassionate as a country in the way we execute the law. Um, in the same way, if I break the law while I'm speeding, I'm hoping a, a police officer is still going to handle that situation with kindness and, and courtesy, even if he gives me a ticket. So. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So speaking of another thing that, that really uh, compassion plays in, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, veterans affairs and, and taking care of veterans that we've sent to fight uh, you know, specifically ones we've sent to fight and that, that end up injured on foreign soil. Um, yeah. you know, it's no secret that the department that handles veterans affairs and, and the well-being of veterans is, is a mess. The, the VA clinics, you know, there are these horror stories that veterans tell about the experiences that they have at these clinics, the wait times to get in. I personally know a guy who served in, in Iraq, uh, and, and, you know, he was going through some things one day and he, he had an issue where he needed to talk to somebody and just like work through his issues that he had. And, you know, like these yeah. were like serious, serious issues. And they told him it would take six to seven months just to get in to talk to someone to do like an initial visit. Yeah. So what do you view your role as a member of Congress if you get elected? And how, how would you how would you work to 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 the betterment of veterans to, to take care of the veterans that are in need of and deserving of medical care? Yeah, great question. And um, one uh, kind of local note on what you're talking about with your friend. Um, I'm a part of a five-county coalition, and um, it's Duval, St. John's, Nassau, Clay, and Baker counties, and we came together to, to try to combat veteran suicide, which is a huge crisis, and um, we're losing a skyrocketing rate for a lot of the reasons you mentioned of, of some of the challenges of the VA, but then a variety of factors, and so we acted locally, and what we're trying to do is create a peer mentoring program so that um, people like your friend who have those challenges, if they can't get, we need to fix the VA that, and I'll talk about that, but, um, they also have local options and local support of their brothers or sisters in arms, or even non military, but people who are, have gone through a, a elevated level of training and have a basic understanding of how to help, um, and be a voice or be a, a listening ear at the very least. 
so I think you know we we should act locally when we can and, and build the community. DC isn't always the solution, but with the VA overall, I think President Trump has taken action and Congress has taken action to to reform some aspects of it. There's still a lot of work to be done. I'm in favor of voucher system, um, which is is there in in concept and there's some funding for, but. Basically, if you aren't able to get the care in the VA system, that you can take that voucher and go into the civilian market and use it. Because the pro- the challenge with the VA is it's socialized medicine. Right. And people say, oh, you want socialized medicine. It's like, well, that's what the VA system is. And our, our, I think veterans have earned the right to, to have medical care. But I don't know that the delivery method is the best through um, simply having a, a big government bureaucracy. And that's that's the problem. I think there are caring people within the VA who are dedicated and really want to help, but that the bureaucracy of, of it in government, typical government fashion, overcomplicates everything. And so I think uh, the key is, is um, simplifying the bureaucracy so that a veteran gets an answer on things and, and has a, they're not in this waiting game, this constant um, wondering what the government's going to say about their case, and then allowing a voucher system so that they can get the care that they need if the, the line is like you're saying six or seven months because we can't have veterans dying waiting for care that's unconscionable in this country so. yep yep and it's funny that you mentioned that it's socialized medicine because that's exactly what i do when anyone talks seriously about the government overall controlling health care i'm like listen you, you've got to talk to veterans about the health care they get already and look yeah. at the system and even, you know, you know, outside of that, even something as simple as going to like the DMV, it's just like government systems tend to get bloated and they're hard to deal with. And, you know, it's, it's, yep. it's hard for, it's hard for an entity in Washington, DC to, to create a system that is nationwide going to take care of the nuances of every individual's needs, right? Whether it's healthcare or, or any exactly. other number of things. So, and while I work for reform, if I do have the honor of serving, what I would do is have a dedicated member of my staff um, to help veterans navigate the current system while we're working to reform and improve it. And uh, that would be one of my highest priorities is, and I would sit down with them on a weekly basis and review where we're at with cases and um, continually put pressure on the VA to, to come up with decisions quickly and that type of thing. Cause that's, that's the biggest thing. Veterans deserve answers the very least, even if it's not a favorable, um, you know, ruling in all cases, they, they deserve quicker answers than the federal government is currently giving them. Agreed. All right. Next thing I want to talk about with you is uh, the government, you know, uh, the government's response to to the pandemic, right? There's a lot of debate over yeah. uh, <laughs> the, the way that various local, state, federal entities have handled, uh, you know, the pandemic. Uh, you know, I just, I'm curious, I don't know how much one person in Congress would be able to change the way the federal government or any other aspect of government handles those pandemics. Yeah. I'm just curious to know, like, wh- where do you stand on some of that stuff? Do you think that lockdowns are the right way to go is sort of voluntary no. education and social <laughs> distancing? Where do you, where do you land on that stuff? I think, I think that federal government could have and should have given guidelines and guidance on things. They could have done some things like shutting down travel so that we weren't getting a large influx of, of people. They could have given general education on things. Um, I'm glad that the president did not order a national lockdown. And obviously, a lot of this has been done at the state level. And I think generally, Governor DeSantis has done a good job in trying to balance this. But I still um, I think once we realized that things were um, not quite what we thought they were going to be, 
we should have, and, and I'm in favor of opening up fully at this point. And, and not that there aren't risks and some challenges um, to doing that, but I think what we've done is, un, uh, unfortunately, it's we position the argument like it's either the economy or life, and it's actually life or life because right. shutting down modern society causes loss of life because modern society keeps people healthy. Um, and allows people access to um, to uh, jobs and they're able to work. And so when you shut down the modern economy and shut down um, modern society, what you do is you cause loss of life in different areas. And so we've seen this in hospitals and, and we've shifted the argument to the argument in the beginning was we have to shut down because the hospitals will be overrun. But then when 40,000 healthcare workers are being laid off nation, or, um, nationwide, or I forget exactly what it is now, but we, we've seen healthcare workers being laid off in a pandemic, that it just doesn't make sense that what the strategy we're taking. And other than New York, we, we haven't seen really anywhere else where the healthcare system has even come close to being overrun. And even in New York, they sent the Mercy and others, and they built, built hospitals they really didn't need. Um, and so... I think government has a role to plan, has a role to prepare for worst case scenarios, um, but it's been egregious the overreach um, in a lot of, of states and even local municipalities, specifically with religious freedom. Um, and whether I agree or disagree with the choice of a pastor to meet, he has every right to, to meet he or she to, to meet their congregation to meet. And um, I think government has way overstepped uh, its constitutional authority when it came to lockdowns for the pandemic. Um, and what you're seeing, I think, with these riots is obviously there was the initial spark of, of some of the starting of it. But I think a lot of it is pent up frustration from being locked in. Yep. And so I think the government poorly handled this. And what we have to do is return to individual responsibility in our country. Government has a role. Government should be competent in that role and what they're doing. But the individual and personal responsibility is, is a key fundamental thing in a free society. And we have to return to that concept as a nation. Yeah. And, and, you know, you have to balance like, you know, I'm, I'm all for, you know, taking steps as a society voluntarily to, to yeah. mitigate the, the effects of a, of a virus. But you have to weigh that with, with how far into an economic depression do we want to plunge ourselves to, to take those steps, right? There's got to be a way to have some sort of voluntary action taken by the community to educate people and say, if exactly. we take these steps, we can... We and can, if people have concerns, yeah. they can stay home, work on remote yeah. working locate, uh, agreements with people. But what we've done is we've, we've made the decision for people. Right. And, and that's a dangerous place to get in because government does not know best. And, um, and government often is the problem, not the solution. And yep. we've seen all kinds of other issues as a result of this. And I think, um, sadly, we've, um, we, we've probably caused more deaths by some of the measures taken than we've saved. Um, and that's, that's the really sad thing. In Clay County, as a commissioner, my role there, I think it's important to understand, you know, if you're especially, I'm the only elected official in this race, so I'm the only one who's making decisions related to these things. And we, we worked very diligently to, we kept green spaces at parks open, um, we have had zero COVID-related arrests, um, and we've tried to inform the public and, and make sure that our hospitals were prepared, and we've assisted um, advanced life care facilities and others, but and coordinating efforts, and we've coordinated food feeding efforts, those types of things to help through these difficult times. 
but we have have tried to be um, very cautious on using government to kind of force compliance on things because it, it's just not uh, the the best solution. I mean, right. the hand of government is not the only way to lead. Um, right. I think that that's what unfortunately sometimes uh, I think our government officials turn to force as an option always when um, leadership is comes in many forms. So. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. You know, it's unfortunate, uh, you know, to see the, the ancillary negative effects of, uh, you know, you essentially put 40 million people out of work and locked them in their houses for oh, yeah. two and a half, three months. And then you add this God awful situation, uh, with, with George Floyd on top of that, that I think everybody agrees and, and sees that that's just a terrible thing that should never be tolerated. I think we, we we've had an experiment in socialism and I definitely right. do not want want that government controlling everything is is the worst live free or die i I would rather um live free in in a free society even if at the risk of death yeah we've created a powder keg you know and people and and, you know there's a lot of things looting and and writing that there there are opportunists that are coming in and doing awful things that don't have anything to do with protests but i think there's just this roiling anger uh of of the frustration in the last three or four months that people are just sort of letting out and then it's awful to see, you know, and I hope that, that it calms down soon. We'll see, you know, we'll see where it goes, but it's kind of where we are at the moment. So another thing that's sort of near and dear to my heart um, is abortion, Um, you know, and I, and I, you know, I want to, I don't want to dwell on it too much. Right. Like, because I think it's, it's either you stand one way or the other. And I think it much like the second amendment is a thing that in a a Republican primary, everybody's going to have a particular viewpoint on it. Right. Yeah. Um, But, you know, I, I'm very much uh, an advocate that abortion is never, should never be an option, but I think that mm-hmm. I'm not necessarily an advocate to, to spend a lot of time and money and energy to overturn the laws that are on the books. But I, I think we as a society should offer resources to women that, that feel that they're in a spot where they have to make that choice. Right. So what's your sort of in general, what's your view on abortion? Where do you stand on that? I believe life begins at conception until natural death. So it's not simply about protecting life inside the mother, but it's also about protecting life at the end of life. And so I think we have to be very careful of, um, you know, aggressive efforts to, uh, you know, at the end of life, because how a society treats um, life at the the sunrise and sunset of life, I think is critical. But I also, um, I think we, again, compassion is important on this issue. And so uh, I I would sponsor pro-life legislation and, um, in Congress, one of that being shifting funding from Planned Parenthood to adoption agencies. It would be what I call the Adoptions Not Abortions Act. And um, I think that would look like grants probably to the states because I don't think a federal adoption agency is a good idea. I don't think a federal, almost any kind of agency is a good idea. Um, But I think taking some of the funding that currently goes to Planned Parenthood, a large corporation that is for profit, um, and putting that towards supporting and encouraging adoption is great. I, my family has been touched by adoption. My sister is adopted. Um, my nephew is adopted. And adoption is a beautiful picture of affirming life in difficult circumstances. And my sister um, is she's Indian, Malaysian, American. So she's Indian ethnicity, Malaysian born um, and an American citizen. And her birth mom faced very difficult circumstances in an Indian society where women aren't um, as valued um, from a historic caste system right. approach and poverty and had lots of challenges, but she found a way and my parents adopted her. Um, and and it, she's a beautiful picture of, of what life can be 
even in difficult circumstances um, and the mom choosing life. And then my nephew, you know, has similar tough circumstances that his mom was in and um, adoption became a beautiful option. And that's the thing that I would fight to do is I would fight against abortion because I do believe um, a free society has a right and duty to to protect life. But I would also focus on affirming adoption as as a good alternative. Good. Yeah. And I think that's, that's the, me personally, I think that's the right way to approach it. Right. We want to give resources where, where adoptions can happen, but we also, you know, as a society, and this is where I look to, to, you know, private society, especially uh, church communities. You know, I'm a pretty religious guy, a uh, member of a local church. And I think that the church community should be stepping up and, and instead of, you know, in some scenarios, you see some churches that are sort of accosting women and they're outside of abortion clinics and yeah. you know, they gotta, they gotta do what their conscience, you know, leads them to do. But I think, if private industry and, and private charities and organizations could, could rally around some of these women that, that face an awful choice. Cause I can tell you, man, like my wife and I, we have a daughter Absolutely. and, and we're, you know, we're very blessed, very fortunate. And, and when we found out my wife was pregnant, it was sort of a terrifying, you know, it's a, it's a terrifying thought, right? Like it's a big responsibility. Yeah. It's a big change. World's in life. about to change. Yeah. So, and, and we have a very robust support system. I got all kinds of family around me. I got free babysitting, all kinds of stuff. And it was still scary. And I can only imagine somebody who isn't as fortunate as my wife and I, who doesn't have the support, doesn't have family members, doesn't have, you know, uh, maybe as many of the bless- material blessings, you know, that I have, like uh, how much scarier that would make it for them. So it's good to hear, you know, anybody sort of say, like, we got to we gotta bolster the ways, the, yeah. op- the other options for people. When a great than- part of that responsibility is on the man, and that's what's sad right. to me. This isn't just about the, the, the woman's choice. This is about the men taking responsibility for their actions and, yep. If you uh, do take partake in activity that results in in pregnancy, you better step up and take responsibility. And uh, so we need to we need to be um, saying that, talking about that to the men too, because sadly, abortion oftentimes is a way for men to escape um, the responsibility. Yep, not not a good thing for sure. Um, so last thing I want to talk to you about is the the sort of the elephant in the room. If you're in Washington, is the 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 federal budget, right? You know, it's 22, yeah. $23 trillion in, in the red, uh, you know, and just continues to sort of spend more than it takes in. Um, so just in general, like my first question to you is like, as, as a member of Congress, would you put any sort of a priority around uh, requiring a balanced budget or any sort of measures to reduce the deficit that we currently have? Absolutely. I, if, if I had the opportunity to vote on a um, balanced budget amendment, I would and support one. And then I think in general, the best strategy for reducing the federal um, deficit and then uh, eventually the debt, which obviously are two different things, but is we have to start with capping growth. And then from there, so if we cap the growth of government and we're not even starting to cut, we're just capping the growth. If we have economic growth, we a, a, re, a reduction in the growth of government, and eventually we can start to to see um, the light at the end of the tunnel. But we haven't even had politicians willing to do that. They, and and the way the budget, not um, OMB, the Office of Budget Management, scores things is a huge problem. The Congressional um, Budget Office. We need to change the way we score cuts per se, because a lot of times when we cut the growth of government, it's viewed as a cut somehow, which, when it really isn't. So. Um, and I, I'm pouring a strong national defense, but I also think we have to be smart with the way we spend 
uh, national defense dollars. And, and I think the Pentagon needs to be accountable too. And they can't waste money on, um, you know, multi-billion dollar weapons projects that have huge overruns and all kinds of issues like the General Bauer Ford class um, carrier is, is an amazing modern weapon system um, that we need and, and is, is helpful, but it's had billions in cost overruns. Like, and right. yet the Navy's focused on trying a Navy SEAL for the questionable activity in the combat zone. And, um, you know, I think that those, we have to have some oversight of some of these weapons projects that have just gotten, have spiraled out of control. And then foreign wars is a big, big issue. I, you know, I'm a global war and terror veteran. Um, I spent a year in a combat or nearly a year in a combat zone. And, um, I do think we have a duty and a role to play in the world, but I think we should be very cautious of sending troops to foreign wars. And, um, that's, that's one of the costs that have, have caused the federal deficit to skyrocket among other things. I, I think welfare reform is another way to, um, find, find some uh, solutions where we encourage personal responsibility and contribution, not necessarily financial contribution, but if you're on welfare, you should contribute something back to society and right. be working to improve yourself, not just simply collecting a paycheck. So there's a lot that can be done, but I absolutely think that starting with capping the growth of government, you got to stop the bleeding before you can go in and, and figure out the long-term solution. Yeah. Good stuff, man. Definitely. Um, you know, it, it's going to be one of those things where the, the longer we as a nation and, and leaders in our nation, let it go, the federal debt is, is going to just become this bigger and bigger problem. Right. And like the, it's one of those things where when that balloon pops, you know, it, it, we're going to be hurting yeah. more than we want to. So, so hopefully, you know, I, we'll figure out how to fix that. I also do think we, we should find a mechanism to um, hold China, communist China responsible for some of the economic um, challenges that have occurred as a result of the um, pandemic. And yeah. I mean, I, I, I guess the question there what, is, is, is like, what do you really think we like? I don't know. Say, I go back and forth on that. It's it's frustrating to deal yeah. with the communist regime that, that clearly, like, you know, in my opinion, they lied about their numbers of, of covid cases. Right. I don't I don't know the death numbers. I don't know. I, I don't know how lethal the coronavirus really is. They clearly skewed the numbers. They took a lot of measures. They, they weren't forthright and honest about a lot of the things that were going on over there. But I guess my question is, like, I don't know what we can really do to them. Like, what could we effectively, like, what action yeah. could we effectively take against China? Well, we, we've started doing a lot of this. Um, we can divest pension plans in um, Chinese stock exchange. We can stop giving them technology transfers. Um, we can we can have um, tighter controls on products coming over. There's a wide host of things. The problem is not, not only the pandemic, just the, the latest in a series of, of aggressions. I mean, the Chinese government has an entire division dedicated to stealing U.S. intellectual property. Um, and mm -hmm. now you see, you know, China come, taking over Hong Kong and asserting authority. It's really like Austria in 1938. And what we have is a, an aggressive regime that we have to stand up to. And I'm not saying that means go to war with China, but we, we're really already at war in many respects. What we have to do is, um, push back and, and uh, on a broad-based front. And um, we're already doing that. I think some good steps are being taken. But I do think, like, China um, still owes the United States bondholders in the United States large sums of money from back in 1939 or uh, 1949 
when it became communist. And so um, international law says that the government in charge of, of the country assumes the debt and right. U.S. Um, bondholders were never paid for that. So there could be a canceling of that debt in favor of a canceling of the $1 trillion, $1.5 trillion in U.S. Um, debt held by Chinese citizens. And then China needs to have independent audits um, of, of their financial institutions. They, they operate in the international community to their benefit, but they refuse to play by the rules of the international community. And that those days have to end immediately. So. Yeah. yeah, it makes sense. And hopefully, you know, you know, hopefully people in Congress will figure that out. And if, if you get elected, I, you know, I think that's something that, that yeah. clearly you'll have to do. It's a great book, Stealth War. Stealth War by General um, Spaulding, if you haven't um, gotten a chance to read it, hmm. that details a lot of what China's strategy is to undermine the United States. And and he he's not an alarmist. He's a general who flew stealth bombers and speaks Chinese fluently, who was stationed in, as the defense attache and then became the head of um, Chinese expert in the National Security Council when he wrote a book that basically outlines exactly what China's doing and details it and and give specific uh, policy recommendations. So interesting. Yeah, I'll have to check it out for sure. All right. Last thing I got for you, you know, you have uh, sort of an open mic here. Let the people of Clay County know why they should vote for Gavin Rollins for Congress. Well, there's a crowded field um, to replace Congressman Yoho. And I think Congressman Yoho has done a great job. He um, he was a citizen politician. He didn't go up to D.C. to become famous. He went up there to serve. He did. And he kept his promise, which is shocking for a politician, and, and returned home um, to his family. And I think carrying on that legacy of, of citizen politicians willing to serve for a time but not looking to stay in D.C. And, and live there forever is the model I want to um emulate and I'll be a servant leader. I have a proven track record as a county commissioner fighting for life, fighting for the second amendment, less government, standing up and voting against taxes. Um, I've taught in the classroom. I've taught students the constitution. So in DC, I'll defend the constitution. And as a military officer in a combat zone, I fought under president Trump and, and defended freedom and in Congress, I'll continue that fight. So I think a proven track record, um, and a, a servant leadership approach. And what I always tell people is I, I view Washington as a war zone and I don't want to live there forever or stay there forever, I, but I want to go up there as a deployment to battle and then return home because this is home. This has always been home and will will be my home and the place um, that, that I want to live and, and raise my family. So Awesome, man. Well, you know, once again, I appreciate your time. Appreciate you. You're coming on the the podcast, and, and I wish you all the best of luck at the polls. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. And uh, tell your wife I said hello, and um, great talking with you.